And we're going to concentrate our attention on this man, Boaz. So Ruth chapter 2, just reading a few verses from the chapter. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came, and hath continued even from the morning until now, that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels, and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, and bowed herself to the ground, and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee, of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. We'll end our reading at verse 12, and we'll bow together uh, briefly in a word of prayer. (coughs) Our gracious God, we pray that thou wilt bless us as we turn afresh to the scriptures of truth. Thou hast told us, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, and we believe it. We believe this is the truth. And therefore we pray that thou wilt apply the truth to all of our hearts. Help us, O God. Guide us in the scriptures, through the scriptures, and guide us to the man of sorrows, the Saviour, the Son of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the uh, place uh, of Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire in England, there is Uh, what was known as the first model village. It's been described as uh, the grandfather (coughs) of other model villages. Uh, It depicts uh, in miniature form uh, a village in the 1930s uh, England. Uh, And I've never been there, uh, but I know that there's a number of these model villages, uh, and they are quite wonderful because of the tremendous detail Uh, And you see uh, the accuracy and uh, the immense effort that was made to set out that picture. 
Now that's just a miniature. That's just a model. It's a picture uh, of what a village is like that you might go and live in. And why do I refer to this? Because in the Bible, you get these models, <coughs> you get these pictures, uh, these types, and they show forth for us the Lord Jesus Christ. And Boaz is the one that I'm going to focus upon tonight. There are different pictures of Christ, uh, different things that picture Christ for us. The Passover lamb, for example, different people. You think of Joseph and his sufferings, his being cast into prison, and then his elevation as a picture of Christ. You think of David, the mighty warrior defeating the great enemy of our souls. And then you think of his son Solomon setting forth the, the peaceable uh, times that we have under Christ and the future glory of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that Boaz came from Bethlehem, the very place that the Lord Jesus Christ was born in. And in this book, uh, we've looked at different characters. We've looked at Elimelech, the man who didn't live up to his name. Uh, we've looked at Naomi, the sad woman who suffered because of going down into Moab. Then we've compared last time two young women. One, a fine young woman, but who turned her back on God, turned her back, we might say, on salvation, returned to the gods of Moab, and died as far as we can see, professing faith in those idols, losing her soul eternally. On the other side, we saw the wonderful picture of a heroine of the faith, that young woman Ruth, with all the disadvantages, especially of her companion turning back. And we have seen her noble testimony, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. And she says uh, that she's going to follow the Lord and to follow him the whole way. And then that brings us to the last great character in the book, this man, Mo man Boaz, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that I want us to focus upon is his character. You, you'll see his character set out in verse 4. It says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, and notice these words, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. So the first thing that we notice about Boaz is his interest in the Lord. He's coming here to his servants. These are people that uh, he's in charge of. He's their boss. He doesn't ask them, how are things going? Uh, how's the crop going? Is everybody pulling their weight? He doesn't speak to the servant that set over the reapers. No, his first thought is for the Lord. The Lord, he says, be with you. And they uh, clearly influenced by this man, they say to him, the Lord bless thee. Here is spiritual conversation and we are introduced to a spiritual man. He puts God first and that pictures for us. In that simple detail, the Son of God, what did he say? And someone quoted it, I believe, in our prayer time before this meeting. I do always 
those things that please him. That's what Christ was thinking of all the time. He was thinking of the will of his father, doing what was pleasing in his father's sight. So Boaz shows us Christ in uh, his putting God first in his life. And then you'll see that he has an interest in people. You see that particularly in regard to Ruth. Uh, She's just one girl in the field. Uh, He knows the others quite clearly because he notices one girl, one young woman in the field and he doesn't know who she is. He has noted all the others. They're familiar to him. And he says, whose damsel is this? And when he's told, uh, in the following conversation, you will find that he had already taken an interest in Ruth, uh, not some carnal interest, uh, but a disinterested interest, if I may put it that way. He has heard about her. He has heard about how she has left her home, left her father and mother, and left uh, the land of her nativity, that she has come to uh, Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, has been looking after her mother-in-law, and he has that interest in her. He has that care for her, and by extension, we may say, he has a care for all his reapers. He has a care for uh, those who are strangers reaping in his field, gathering up the gleanings. Here is someone who is interested in people. And we can say that that's true of Christ. The publicans and sinners, they came to the Savior. They felt that he cared for them. Other people despised them, especially uh, the Jewish leaders. They despised the publicans, these tax collectors, who often uh, were very mean and extracted more from the people uh, than they had a right to extract. Publicans and sinners, that's just a name for the worst of sinners. We're all sinners, but when it says publicans and sinners, it's speaking of the lowest and the vilest of sinners. And yet they felt comfortable in the presence (coughs) of the Savior. You see, they knew something. They knew he didn't approve of their sin, but they also knew he cares about us. He'll not excuse our sin, but he will help us. He will show his love toward us. The Lord Jesus Christ is interested in people, and here is Boaz depicting the Savior. (coughs) Then you find the generosity of Boaz. Ruth is there. He has no thought of marrying her at this stage. I'm certain of that. It has not, I believe, crossed his mind. She's just a young woman, and he's a much, much older man. He makes that clear in chapter 3 when he praises her. Uh, When she makes a proposal of marriage, he says, you haven't followed young men, whether uh, poor or rich. Uh, You've followed uh, what the Lord has taught you to do. So he's not thinking of marrying her, but he is thinking of showing generosity to her. And he tells her, you come and you uh, get water here and uh, you sup with uh, my maidens. Uh, you, you're going to be treated as one of the family here. Uh, you're going to be looked after. And here is his generosity towards her. And can we not speak of the enormous generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible does say he went about 
doing good. He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb. He cast out evil spirits. He fed the hungry. He raised the dead. And we might say, he gave of his time. He gave of his strength. The Lord Jesus Christ was a generous, the most generous of people. When you think of this man being generous, think of the generosity of Christ. How he came from the splendor and glory of heaven into this wicked world and gave of himself and gave of all that he had. You also see in the character of Boaz, holiness. He commanded his young men and he said, don't you lay a finger upon that woman. He might have said she's a foreigner, yes. She's a Moabite and the Moabites have not been our friends, they have been our enemies. But she has come back from that country, from the idol worship of that country. She has been true and loyal to Naomi and I will not allow you to lay one finger upon her. You will not molest her. You will not bully her. You will be safe, or she will be safe. As long as she's in my fields, she will be safe. And he's saying, you must act in a holy, upright, pure fashion towards Ruth. And that's the way he will behave towards her. He is completely and absolutely holy in his interactions with Ruth. In fact, when she came to him later at the uh, threshing floor uh, and lay there at his feet, he was disturbed. And he sent her away before dark. He did not want anybody to think that anything untoward had taken place. He was concerned about his testimony. He was a holy man. And who is more holy than the Son of God? Jesus Christ is known. Even the demons of hell said, we know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Not one sin stained the life. Not one sin stained the mind of Jesus Christ. Absolutely pure. And I think I've said it before, that astounds me. That astounds me. You see, we who are sinful creatures, we find it hard to to grasp the concept of absolute holiness. We grow up uh, as children into our teenage years and, and there's many ungodly people around us and we're ungodly too. And, and there's temptations and we hear things that uh, pollute our ears and, and, and we think sometimes as things that are wrong And we say things that are wrong, and we do things that are wrong, and we look at things that are wrong. How awful, how awful that is. Jesus Christ came through childhood, adolescence, into his 20s, up to the age of 30, and never once, never once did Jesus sin. That is astounding. But of course, he had a pure nature. He is the Son of God, absolutely holy. So here is the character of this man, and in his character he sets before us the Lord Jesus Christ, putting God first, caring for men and women, 
being generous, reaching out to them, giving of himself to them, and living a life of spotless holiness. Then I want you to notice the wealth of Boaz. When we're introduced to him, we're told that Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech. He's a mighty man of wealth. Now, without going into really uh, any details about this, that tells us something. It tells us that he had the ability to provide for all the needs of Ruth and Naomi and many other people. He had the resources to provide for his workers and for all the people that were connected with him. A mighty man of wealth. And without going into any more detail on that, I'll take you straight to Christ. What does the Bible say? In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The hymn writer put it this way. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick, and lead the blind. All that we need, all that we need for the satisfying of our soul, all that we need for the forgiveness of our sins, all that we need for peace with God, for joy in this world, to fill our hearts with love. All is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made unto us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We're told that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We joy in God having received the atonement. We joy uh, having received that atonement through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's that beautiful epistle of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, uh, we read of the, the blessings that we have in heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God, it says, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, or it might be rendered in heavenly things, for the word places is in italics, in Christ, blessed, blessed with all spiritual blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that first chapter outlines some of those blessings. It speaks about redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption. Our sins are forgiven through Christ. Then it tells us that we are adopted. We are predestinated uh, onto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Wonderful thing to be adopted into God's family. Uh, and the Lord has, has chosen us to bring us out of the family of darkness into the family of light. One of our first ministers in our church was the Reverend John Wiley's long since departed to glory. And I remember him preaching in our church in Oma. He was quite a witty character. He told about a young man uh, who had been adopted by a local farmer. And he was going out uh, with the daughter of the local squire. If you don't know what the local squire is, he's a very important man 
in the district. Uh, he's, you might say, the nobility of the district. The young man's going out with the young woman and uh, I suppose in many romances there are these upheavals and they had a fallout and the young woman cast it up to the young man. She said, you're adopted. Almost, well not not almost, but in derision and in scorn. And he said to her, my father and mother came to the orphanage and out of all the children in the orphanage, they chose me. And your father and mother just had to take what they got. So <laughs> he, he, he turned it right round and turned it on its head. Well, think of it. Think of being adopted out of such an evil family as you and I have been born into. The fallen sons of Adam's fallen race. Sons and daughters fallen. And God through Christ, has adopted us into his family and we are described as partakers of the divine nature. We're not gods, but the, uh, the nature of God has been imparted to us to make us holy and Christ-like and joyful and loving. So through Christ we're adopted into God's family, but we do not stop there. We have all those spiritual blessings. We have acceptance. What a word. We are accepted. Verse 6 of Ephesians 1 says, In the Beloved. So that when we come before God, God is happy to see us. He's happy to hear from us. He's happy to bestow his blessings upon us. There's a wonderful verse in First Chronicles. that says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. What is the picture there? It's God scanning this earth. He's looking in Phoenix. He's looking across Arizona. He's looking across the 50 states. I thought there were 51, but the 50 states of the United States. He's looking across Russia. He's looking across Europe. And what's he looking for? He's looking for people to bless, to care for. And why is that? Well, because of Christ, because of relationship to Christ, because Christ has shed his blood for those people and God is looking out for them to bless them. So uh, he's able to bless all of them simultaneously. He's able to bless them without measure. And one day he will bless them without any time restraint, without any lessening throughout eternity. The fullness of joy, the fullness of blessing, the fullness of peace eternally. And doesn't Paul say in Philippians 4 and 19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This mighty man of wealth, well, he's, he's a pauper in a sense in comparison with the Saviour the Son of God. There's so much in Christ. I repeat those words. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. If you do not find treasure in Christ and joy and peace and love in Christ, there's something wrong with you. 
And you need to question your relationship to God. You need to get right with God. But then the third thing I want you to note is his strength. Uh, Because uh, we find, if we go back to our text, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and it says, and his name was Boaz. Why do I speak of his strength? Because that's what his name depicts. Boaz means, in him is strength. And you, uh, well, I'm not saying you will know it, but if you check in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 21, you will find there were two pillars erected at the porch of the temple. One was called uh, Jacob, he shall establish. And the one on the left-hand side was called Boaz, and the margin says, in it is strength. It's a pillar, it couldn't say in him. But the idea behind the name is of strength. Now, there's no elaboration of that uh, in the book of Ruth, but there must have been a reason why Boaz is given a name, in him is strength. You think of a strong man. We've already thought of his character. He's a strong character. You might say, when we think of his wealth, he's strong in wealth. He's strong in his opinions because they are God-centered opinions. There is a man who's a pillar of society. In him is strength. Well, doesn't that surely speak of Christ? Because undoubtedly in him is strength. As God, he is almighty. Oh, how wonderful that is. God has laid help on one that is mighty. He is as God, the almighty. His power is seen in creation. His power is also seen in upholding. He upholdeth all things. He keeps everything in place. This world, it's a mystery to us. How does everything hold together? Billions upon billions upon billions. And I could go on and get way out of my depth. Speaking of the vastness of this universe. And we don't even know how vast it is. Because we don't have telescopes large enough. We think the earth is, is an amazing place. Uh, your country is a very large country. We're from a very small country. Canada's a very large country. Russia's a vast country. But it's only a speck. The whole world put together is a little speck. Christ created it. He just spoke. Christ created the billions of galaxies. Christ created this world and he holds it all together. One time, and probably few can remember, there was the Cuban crisis and Khrushchev was was going to place his missiles in Cuba and President Kennedy threatened him and Kennedy knew that Khrushchev wasn't fully prepared for any counter-attack that would be made by America or any first strike that would be made by America, and he pulled back. But they were talking at that time on the news of the possibility of the end of the world. No, this world is controlled by the Lord. 
he upholdeth all things by his mighty power. What a great and mighty Savior. And now that takes me to a very crucial point. Christ needed all his strength in order to deal with his people's sin. Let me tell you what he said himself in Matthew chapter 26. The Lord Jesus Christ was in Gethsemane and he came to his disciples and he said, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. In verse 37 of Matthew 26 it says, He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Here is Christ and he is really feeling it. Uh, and uh, the word sorrowful, or, or well, it means sorrowful, but the next expression, very heavy, uh, it has the idea of deeply depressed, or uh, it actually has the idea of, of being depressed all round. Here is someone, uh, and right around him, he feels enveloped, enveloped with a depression. Christ is feeling it, and he's sorrowful, he knows the weight of man's sins. Uh, and how great is that weight? Uh, sometimes we, uh, we, we, uh, we speak about Peter and how Peter made the bold assertion, I'll never deny you, and so on. Uh, and then we say Peter didn't know how quickly he would fall. Peter was too confident. But you and I were not there. And I believe that uh, the atmosphere... The atmosphere that uh, was experienced at that time uh, would have overwhelmed any ordinary person. There are times when you say that there's something evil in the atmosphere. I can feel it. We know nothing about it in comparison with what was felt when Christ was in Gethsemane. The powers of darkness, I am sure, were closing in. And here is Christ. He, he feels this depression all around him. And then he prays to his father. He's exceedingly sorrowful. And it says, he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. How dark, how dark is this situation. And he prays that the father, if it's possible, will remove that cup from him. And that's telling us that Christ needed all his strength to deal with man's sin, to deal with the problem of his people's sin. Let me just give you a little insight. A man who came from America, a Lutheran pastor, a chaplain during the Second World War, was Henry Gerecke. He was of German extraction. Uh, he had... Uh, served for a number of years as a chaplain. He had three sons in the American forces. Two of them were terribly wounded. One son, uh, 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 another son served as well, but he doesn't seem to have suffered any wounds. But Henry Gorecka was in Dachau concentration camp, not as a prisoner, just as a visitor. And he ran his hand along the wall and his hand was stained uh, with the blood of the innocent that had been shed most, in a most dastardly fashion in that concentration camp. I'm not saying it was liquid blood, but the stains were there. And he was asked to do something that was counter to his instincts and desires. He was asked to serve as chaplain 
to uh, the, uh, the leaders who were on trial at Nuremberg at the end of the Second World War. He didn't want to do it, but he felt it was the Lord's will and he agreed. He had men like von Ribbentrop and Rudolf Hess, who was a prisoner for many years. There were 15 prisoners assigned to him. And he was very straight with them. And he, he didn't want to go and uh, take this role, but he went in, he shook hands with them, he spoke to them. And at the end of the time, when they were going to trial, um, he reckoned that eight or nine, maybe ten of them, had truly repented of their sins. Now, I know there was one that subsequently uh, proved to be totally unreliable and definitely unsaved. There were five or six that made no profession whatsoever and braved it out to the last. But eight, nine, or ten perhaps professed salvation. Imagine that, say, eight or nine of them were really saved. Who paid the price? Who paid the price? I know some of them were executed. Some of them served long prison sentences. One or two were acquitted. But think of the the horrible crimes, the terrible sins that those men committed. Execution was not sufficient. They would have been lost in hell. Yet some of them, some of them, and Henry Gorecka was was very clear. He would not allow them to sit at the communion table until he was totally satisfied that they were saved. And he got no thanks from some people for the effort that he made. And he was asked to do it, remember, by the American authorities. After his death, his family opened up his mail, or they found mail that he had hidden in a drawer. And uh, terrible things were written about him because he had been faithful and he had counseled those men and believed that some of them, a number of them, perhaps the majority of those, 15 under his charge, had truly found Christ. Christ had to pay the price for those people's sins. And may I say this, our sins are not slight. When you know conviction of sin and you feel the weight of conviction, then you realize what a terrible thing it must be for one person, the Son of God, to deal with a multitude of sins, to save a multitude of sinners from their sins. And I say to you, only omnipotence, only omnipotence could have dealt with man's sin. If Christ had been an angel, if he had been a mere man, he would have been crushed. And you and I, could not have been saved. In him is strength. So you see the the character of Boaz shadowing forth the beautiful character of the Son of God. You see the wealth of Boaz, he's able to provide. And in Christ are all the treasures, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in him is strength. He's able to deal with the problem of sin. And I have one more point And I want you to see that Boaz, in acting here, acted strictly in accordance with the law, but also he acted in love. The law was this. uh, When someone died without children, and you'll find it back in the Old Testament, when someone died without children, then the next of kin was to step in 
and uh, he was to marry the widow. See, uh, there's uh, a family with four sons, and the oldest boy marries, and he dies before he has any children. The next son, he was to take the place of the oldest boy, and the first child that was born from that relationship uh, was credited as the heir and successor of the deceased brother. That was the law. And if a man was not willing uh, to carry through the the law, uh, then he took off his shoe and he handed it to the one that was after him, who might have been willing to take his place. And uh, the the widow, uh, she would spit in the man's face. It's not said that Ruth ever spat in anybody's face, but that's what she'd do. Uh, And the man was in a measure of disgrace uh, for not taking the place of his deceased brother. That was the law that was laid down. And if there wasn't a brother to take the place, it would be the nearest of kin. Now, in this book of Ruth, you will find that this man, Boaz, was a kinsman of Elimelech. So he could take the place of Elimelech, but there was a prior claimant. So now it has to be settled in law. Uh, And Boaz, uh, the very next day after Ruth has made the proposal to him, he goes to the gate of Bethlehem. That was the place of commerce, the place where people met together, but more especially, it was the seat of judgment. The elders of the city met together there, and they sat as magistrates to enact the law. So the next day, Boaz, uh, he sees the the man who who has a prior claim, uh, and he gathers together uh, the elders of the city uh, at the gate of Bethlehem, and he he sets out a proposition that is according to the law. Uh, He says, uh, there's there's a parcel of ground here uh, that belongs to Elimelech, and uh, here is the, the first person who has a right And I'm going to advertise it before you to uh, enable you to stake your claim. But when you stake your claim, you have to marry Ruth to raise up children to the deceased. And he says, I can't. I can't. And what does he do? In accordance with the law, he takes off his shoe. And he says, you take it. Uh, You take my place. Uh, You Uh, I'm forfeiting my claim. I'm handing it over to you. It's all very legal. I know it's uh, slightly different from the way that we enact our laws and transact uh, the laws, but it's legal. Everything is, uh, you might say, exactly as it should be. And the, the beauty of this is that it depicts for us uh, the, the, the absolute watertight salvation that is found in Christ. The Bible speaks about justification. You may not realize it, but justification is a legal term. Uh, in Deuteronomy 25, uh, the, the, the Word of God speaks of two men who are in dispute. And they come before the magistrates. 
When they come before the magistrates, you can imagine one is making a claim and the other is making a counterclaim. And the magistrates, they listen very carefully to the case. And when they have decided that man is totally innocent and that man is guilty, they are to condemn the guilty and they are to justify, to declare righteous the one who is in the right. Well, the Bible speaks about being justified. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You're clear. Justification is more than pardon. It's more than pardon. It includes pardon, but it's more than pardon. And that's where I, I, I come to those two place names. You're probably wondering uh, and thinking he's forgotten all about them. Well, not so. Uh, when we were driving along, we saw Emil Zola Boulevard. I thought, what? I'm going to mention Emil Zola tonight. The next street or two over was Dreyfus Road or Dreyfus something else. And I thought, I'm going to mention Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Uh, let's unravel the mystery for you. Captain Alfred Dreyfus was accused, he was a French captain, he was accused of selling military secrets to an unnamed enemy believed to be to Germany. And he was taken to trial. And he was found guilty. And after he had been found guilty, his regiment was brought before him. They stripped his rank from his shoulders. They broke his sword in two. And he was banished to a penal colony in disgrace. Emil Zola was an author... I think he was a novelist. And Emil Zola took an interest in the case. And he was convinced that there had been a miscarriage of justice. And so he agitated the matter until the authorities in France, we might say, were somewhat embarrassed. And they had to have a second trial of Captain Alfred Dreyfus. And so he was brought in again he was tried. All the evidence was in his favour. He wasn't guilty. But he was a Jew. And there was a lot of anti-Semitic feeling. And for the honour of the French army, they found him guilty a second time. The next day, he was offered a presidential pardon. And Alfred Dreyfus said, if I have done the deed... I'm willing to take the punishment. But if I haven't done the deed, I will not accept the pardon. And so it didn't work. He wanted justification. He didn't just want a pardon. He wanted justification. He wanted to be cleared. And they had to have a third trial. And this time, with all the evidence that they had previously, this time he was exonerated. He was declared not to be guilty. And his regiment was brought before him. His rank was restored to his shoulders. He was presented with a new sword. And the regiment saluted their captain. Alfred Dreyfus went on to serve. And his son also, 
in the Second World War, if I am recalling uh, the information that I have received aright. So there is Captain Dreyfus. He doesn't just want a pardon, because when you get a pardon, generally you're guilty, uh, uh, but you're just being let off in a way. He wants to be cleared. Well, the Bible says we are justified, legally justified, uh, cleared. And how are we cleared? Because it says freely. Uh, and that word means without a cause. By his grace, by his unmerited favor. But there is there's something that causes us to be cleared through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ has paid the price. Christ has shed his blood. And all our sins have been atoned for. Therefore the record is absolutely clear. And that's why in Romans chapter 8 uh, we read the challenge by the Apostle Paul. And what does he say? He says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that, and here's the crucial part, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Clear. No sin. No sin when you're in Christ. Who is anything? Who can lay anything to our charge? When I stand before God, the devil may howl and shout and say all he wants, but Christ will step forward and he'll say, I've paid for that. I've cleared the record. He is my child. So this is all done legally by Boaz, that he can step in and uh, he can clear any debt there is and take over the estate well, Christ has cleared the record for us. He takes over. And then I said, and I'm finished with this, Boaz also acted in love. It's not stated, but I have no doubt whatsoever he fell in love with Ruth. He wasn't going to push his claim. He fell in love with Ruth. He loved her. And when they came together, they had a very happy marriage that issued in the birth of Obed, uh, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, and the line continues to Christ. Fruitful marriage, a happy marriage, a marriage in love. Christ is the great lover. I quoted those words, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, the lover of the soul. The Son of God who loved me, Paul said, and gave himself for me. And I quote again words that I'm sure I've quoted once or twice already. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. Yea. As if to say yes. Certainly. I have loved thee. With an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness. Have I drawn thee. It's not that Christ fell in love. With us. He has always. Always. Always loved us. And we come together in that bond of unity and of love. He gives us peace. He makes us fruitful. And that fruitfulness will be seen to the fullest extent in eternity.
Ruth was loved. Ruth was provided for. How much more? Are you and I who are saved loved? How much more abundance do we find in Christ than Ruth found in Boaz? Yes, he loves us with an everlasting love. Don't we love to hear these stories? And they lived happily ever after. Well, in Christ's presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's enjoy them. Let's live holy lives in surrender to Christ and win others to this glorious and wonderful Savior. Boaz, a mighty man of wealth. Boaz, beautiful character. Boaz, in him is strength. Boaz, who does everything according to law, so that what he has in taking over that estate is watertight. And our salvation is watertight. And we will, in heaven, live happily, if we're saved, happily ever after. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that thou would apply thy truth to all of our hearts. Thank you for Boaz. Thank you, Lord, for this love story. But Lord, we thank you far more for what it symbolizes. One day with Christ and with Christ for all eternity, filled with his love, his peace, his joy. Answer prayer for us. Forgive us all our failures and especially our failure truly to appreciate Christ and all his greatness, all his vast mercy, all his tremendous sacrifice, all his deep love. Oh, hear our cry. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.